All right, Romans. Uh, if you were to, Romans is uh, 16 chapters long. And if you were to break up uh, Romans in sections, you could break up Romans pretty easily and cleanly in uh, two different sections. So section one, section two. Section one would be uh, Romans chapter one uh, through chapter 11. And uh, much of that section, uh, section one, is all about theology proper, meaning how do we understand God? How do we think about God? Uh, And if we understand God rightly, then we'll be able to relate with God rightly. Uh, The second section of Romans is really broken up into the last few chapters, looking at Romans chapter 12, uh, all the way through the end of the letter in uh, chapter 16. And you could break that into practical theology of how do we apply to our lives everything that we just learned, everything that Paul has written, everything that Paul has instructed. So you've got theology proper, understanding God, and then you've got very practical theology of uh, applying or how do we live out everything that we've just heard. Now, this is the 23rd message uh, in this series of Romans. Uh, I hope that it's been an encouraging series, a challenging uh, series for you, but uh, we are nearing the end of section one. Uh, So this morning, uh, we were in chapter eight for a couple weeks. This morning, we're starting uh, Romans uh, chapter nine. And as we launch into these uh, last three chapters of nine, 10, and 11, these are probably, um, if you thought we've gone through some difficult chapters already, uh, these are probably the most difficult chapters in all of Romans. Uh, you don't have to show your hands by raising, but I ask a couple questions. How many people here have ever struggled or at least wondered about God's sovereignty? Is God really in control? Is he in control of my life? Is he in control of a world that seems to be out of control? Is such a thing as the sovereignty of God? Is God sovereign? A question of predestination. I get asked this question uh, often of, Michael, where do you stand? Where does the church stand on the idea of predestination? I would venture to say that there's a lot of people here who at least have questions or wonder or are curious about Are we predestined? Did God choose us? Did we choose God? How does all of that work? Which then lends itself to another question. What about free will? Am I just a puppet on a string, as it were, and God's just kind of pulling my arm when I'm supposed to raise it this way and and such? Or do I have choice? Is it really free will or is there a choice or how does all of that work in light of predestination? How about the question of just God's faithfulness? Will God be faithful to do everything that God has said that God would do? How about the justice of God? Ever wonder, is it really fair, the things that God does? Is God a just God? Because uh, there seems to be a lot of things that would be under the category of this is not just. It just doesn't seem fair. Uh, or lastly, what about hell? What about the subject of hell? Is there really a place called hell? And if there is, Who's there? Is it empty? Is it populated? How do you get there? How do you avoid going there? And uh, this is actually the subject uh, that we're going to tackle today is the subject of hell. Now, I just rambled off about six or seven different topics. Each of these topics are covered in the next three chapters. So these are really, really challenging chapters that we are heading into. And uh, as I was preparing for today, one of the things that uh, the Lord brought to mind was a commitment or a promise that I made to you as a church uh, on message number one back in September. I think September 20th was when we kicked off this series in Romans. 
And the commitment was simply this. It was twofold. I promised you that I would work really hard. I would study. I would pray. I would be disciplined. I would do the best that I could uh, to really unpack Romans. It's a challenging book. So that was commitment number one. And commitment number two was I would be absolutely faithful to preach whatever Romans preaches, meaning I'm not going to implement my own ideas in this. I'm going to do the best that I can to present what Paul presents to us in the book of Romans, even if it's really hard, i.e. subjects like hell, i.e. subjects like predestination. And one of the, um, uh, an author, teacher, pastor that has had a good influence on my life, his name is R.C. Sproul, he said it like this, I am required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what I want the Bible to say is true. It's easy to interject our own ideas into Scripture because our ideas sometimes make it a little bit more comfortable, make it a little bit more palatable, make it a little bit easier. And my commitment to you as a church was I'm not going to do that. If Scripture, specifically Romans, deals with free will and predestination and election and God's sovereignty, we're going to talk about it. Uh, Now, one of the things I didn't do is ask you to make a commitment. And so as I jump into Romans 9, I want to ask you to make one commitment Uh, specifically over these next few weeks. And the commitment that I would ask you individually, but also as a church, is to see this through. To see this through the next few weeks. Some of you uh, most likely will be uh, offended at the subject, the material we're talking about today, because we're talking about hell. And so it would be easy for you to say, well, gosh, if that's what they believe, I'm out of here. I'm asking us as a church, let's stick with this. Don't bail or don't quit just because subject material might be hard. So just because something is hard or you don't like it doesn't mean that it's true. And so what I'm asking for all of us as a community, as a church, is that we would stick this through. Let's see what God has to say to us about his sovereignty, about predestination and election, about free will, about God's justice, uh, and today specifically about divine wrath or the subject of hell. So this is Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read all five verses. We're just looking at the first five verses in Romans. And it says this. Uh, This is Paul speaking. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever to be praised. Amen. Those are the five verses we're going to cover today. And Paul starts off in verse 1, I speak the truth. I'm not lying. The Spirit of God confirms this. Why would Paul use such emphatic, such strong language of, I'm telling you the truth. My own own conscience confirms this, but beyond that, the Spirit of God at work confirms that what I am saying is absolutely true. Have you ever had someone accuse you of being a sellout? Someone looked at you, a friend, a family member, and they just... They accused you of being a sellout, maybe even a traitor. You used to think this, you used to do this, you used to believe this, but that's just not you anymore, so 
and their opinion of you, you're nothing more than a sellout. And I think for Paul, many of Paul's fellow Jews looked at Paul as, you're a total sellout, Paul. You used to be a leader of this community, of this Jewish culture. Paul, you were on the forefront of leading all of us, and now you're a traitor. Now you're actually preaching Jesus Christ as Messiah. You're preaching about this church that is now including even Gentiles. So they look at Paul as an absolute traitor, and they look at Paul as a sellout. And I think with all of that, if you're, if you're ever seen as a sellout or a traitor, really what they're saying is, Paul, you don't really love us anymore. You've lost your affection. You've lost your loyalty. You've lost your love for us. But what I see in Paul is he wants especially his Jewish audience, with there, there would be a lot of Jewish people reading this letter in first century Rome, he wants them to read his letter through his tears. He wants the Jewish people to know just how much, how strong, how deep his love and his affection for his fellow brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews are. And so he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's a pretty powerful statement. I have got great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. As you consider that, when's the last time that you had sorrow, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in your heart? Think for a minute. I'm not trying to dredge up, you know, uh, old hurtful, painful memories, but When's the last time that was you? That's a descriptor of who you are and where you're at. Of There's just such great sorrow right now, there's such great anguish, and it's unceasing. It just doesn't stop. I think for most of us, it's not only a question of when the last time it was, but why? What caused that great sorrow? What caused this unceasing anguish of the heart? And I think if we're honest, most of our pain is often at the hands of wrongs that were committed against us or just things didn't go our way. So when I consider the things that I was most troubled by, sorrowful over, or anguished of heart, it's typically, not always, but typically, and it may, may be true of you, it's because someone wronged me. Someone spoke poorly of me. Someone did me wrong, as it were. But for Paul, his pain was not caused by what something did by what someone had done to him, his sorrow, his anguish of heart was caused by a situation that someone else was in. I'm sure there's maybe times where you could relate with that. You looked at the situation that someone else was in and it just caused great pain, like unceasing pain. And this is what Paul is looking at. What was the reason? What was the reason that Paul was just anguished of heart Great sorrow, great troubled, unceasing anguish as he talks about. What was the reason? Well, the reality is the people that he loved, his fellow Jews, his fellow brothers and sisters of the Jewish nation, of the Israelite community, they were cut off and cursed. Okay, that is really, really strong language. As he considered the Jewish people and how they were relating to God... (coughs) He recognized that his brothers, his sister, his own family was cursed and cut off from God. Do you know someone right now in your life, not just someone like 10 people removed from you, but someone 
personal to you, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a best friend, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, a coworker? Do you know someone right now who their life is not summed up by a relationship that they have with God? I'm going to venture to say that all of us in here have at least one person that comes to mind when we think about that person doesn't know who God is. They're actually pretty distant, pretty far, pretty removed right now from even having a relationship with God. When I think about those people in my life, I've seen three different responses that I have when I consider people who are cut off from God, they don't have a relationship with God right now, is I've had seasons of hope, seasons of you know, one day, one day they'll get it. One day they'll come to the realization that what they're looking for, searching for, needing most, more than anything, is a relationship with God, and he's made that possible through Christ. Then I've had seasons where I'm, I'm very doubtful, very cynical. Man, that person is so far, they're so hard, they're so indifferent. They just seem like they don't give a rip about anything that has to do with God at all. And I grow very doubtful that there will ever be a change of the relationship as it is uh, with God in the future. Then I've had seasons of indifference. It's not completely that I don't care, but I'm just not thinking about it because my mind is consumed with myself. I've got so much else going on in my life, in my little circle, in my little world, that I've stopped thinking about them. I've stopped maybe even praying for them. So I'm, I'm assuming that at some level you can identify with one of those seasons, if not all of those seasons, when we consider people we know who don't have a relationship with God. They're very distant. So you could be hopeful, you could be doubtful, or you could be indifferent. Now, as I consider Paul, I don't see any of those responses in the Apostle Paul. He was neither hopeful, doubtful, or indifferent. What I see in Paul was not only an anguished soul, but I see in Paul a willing soul. It was not hopeful or doubtful or indifferent. What I see in Paul is he was absolutely willing to do what I would think is the absolute unthinkable, trade places. And he says in verse 3, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I just want you to... Think about that for a second. I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from God. To be cursed of God, cut off from God, we're talking about damnation. We're talking about eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I don't know if anyone in here, myself included, could say, yeah, I would trade my salvation, my relationship with God, in eternity, in heaven, if this one individual, nonetheless an entire community of people that he clearly did not know all of them, I could wish I myself... Now, some people would look at that and be like, he's totally exaggerating. This is just a passionate pastor speaking in very exaggerated language. But go back to verse 1. What does he say? I'm speaking the truth. My conscience confirms that, and the Holy Spirit confirms I am not lying. This is not a man who is exaggerating to make a point. This is a man who's got deep conviction and passion and love for his people that are currently cursed or cut off or separated from God. And he says, 
I would be willing to trade places with them if they would just come to a saving knowledge, a relationship with Christ. Why does Paul see his brothers as cursed or cut off from Christ? And I think for Paul, it's a pretty simple answer. The reason that he looks at his Jewish brothers and his Jewish sisters, the community, cursed and cut off is because they had rejected the Messiah. The one that God had promised in the Old Testament, the one that God had said, I will send a deliverer, I will send a redeemer, I will send a Messiah, not just to correct your social standing and free you from political bondage, but I will send a redeemer, a savior who will save, who will forgive all of your sins. I will be your God and dwell with you. This was the promise that the Jewish community, the Jewish nation, the Israelites had held on to for thousands of years. God sends the Redeemer, and not all of the Jewish people, but a large percentage of the Jewish population did not recognize or identify, receive Christ as the Redeemer, as the fulfillment of God's promise. So there were some who identified, there were some who recognized that Jesus was the Old Testament fulfillment of God's Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, but not all of them. And so Paul says to them, I would trade places, I would be cut off, cursed, damned in hell if they would just come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, do you think Paul really believed that he could trade places? I don't think he did. I don't think Paul really believed that he as a sinner could trade places with another sinner and that somehow would be, you know, appeasing or atoning for a a very holy God. What I think Paul is trying to communicate is how deeply he longed for these people. This to me, as I sat with verse 3, I really was convicted by, who do I long for like that? Who does my heart just ache for? I mean, who do I even think of that in those terms? Paul looked at his people and say, I would trade places. Now, what is the irony of what Paul is saying here in verse 3? The reality is, the irony of this is someone had already traded places. Someone had already come to trade places with them so that they would not be cut off, so that they would not be cursed, so that they would not spend eternity in hell. So Paul didn't need to offer this because someone had already offered trading places as it were, and his name was Jesus. I think another reason that Paul had such great anguish, such great sorrow, is the very people that should have recognized and received the Messiah, received the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Savior, was the Jewish nation. If there was anyone on the planet that should have recognized who this man was, who this God-man was, it should have been the Jewish nation. And in verses 4 and 5, he lists nine reasons why. The Israelites, theirs is the adoption as sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. (laughs) Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God 
overall forever to be praised. So as he considers his own brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel, if anyone was going to receive Christ, they were positioned best to do so. Nine reasons. Why? Well, first of all, they were Israelites. They were God's chosen people. Now, for those of you, we're going to get into predestination next week, but I'll give you a little bit of a preview. Predestination is not something that we came up with. It's not something that John Calvin or Martin Luther or some of the reformers came up with. Predestination begins with God. And you go all the way back to the Old Testament when God said, nation of Israel, you're mine. I choose you. My affection is on you. If you go back to Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and this was a very important book uh, to the nation of Israel. When I say book, I'm talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy being the fifth. Chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. Listen to this language of, of God choosing Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because they were some great and mighty nation. They were the least of all the peoples. So Israel could not look and be like, well, of course God chose us because look how great we are. They would be utterly, why would God choose us? Because we're the least. He goes on and says, um, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were the Israelites. The second thing, adopted sons. God claimed Israel as his children. Theirs was the divine glory. If you're familiar with Old Testament and the stories in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, saw the glory of God repeatedly. They had visual sight of God's glory. The fourth thing, covenants established with them. God had entered into, with them, no one else, a covenant relationship with Abraham, with King David. Temple worship. Not only did God give them a place, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, fifth one, was they received the law. They, they weren't confused as how God wanted them to live. God gave them a code of conduct, as it were, that was consistent with his character. And the, the sixth thing is, he gave them a place to worship, where he was present. And not only to worship, but when they would mess up, when they would sin, when they would not observe and honor uh, the laws that God had given them, they would, God gave them a place, the nation of Israel, where they could be restored back to right relationship with God. He gives them the promises. The, the amount of New Te or Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in Christ in the New, is just incredible. But the most important promise that they were given is that a Messiah would come, the new covenant, that God would send a redeemer, a deliverer. You write this verse down. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 31, 32, 33, 34. That was the seventh, the eighth, that they had the patriarchs. As they look back through their family lineage, well, we got Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob. This is our, our ancestry here. This is our heritage. We have the patriarchs. And then the ninth and most important 
is they could actually trace the an human ancestry of Jesus back to them. So Paul lists all of these nine things, and I think part of the anguish of heart is, yes, they were cut off from Christ because they had rejected the Messiah, but deeper anguish came, comes from they had every opportunity to, to recognize and to receive the fulfillment of God's promises, and not all of them, but a lot of them had rejected that. Have you ever met someone who they're not Jewish by a family upbringing, uh, that's not their background, but you see them as they've had every opportunity. God has done this, and God has done this. God's trying to get their attention here by doing these all sorts of things, and yet they still seem to have their hearts closed, their minds closed, their eyes closed to the reality of what God's doing. I think this is what Paul is experiencing here with his brothers and sisters. Every opportunity, but you still rejected and refused to receive. Okay, these are five verses uh, that not only reveal Paul's heart for his brothers and sisters, the Israelites, so very revealing of his love, his affection for them, but it also reveals a very weighty matter, and it's this. It's the subject of hell. When Paul talks about being cursed, cut off, Paul is referring to people that would be damned of God. What that means is that there will be people in hell, that there is punishment for not receiving, for not recognizing, for not for being sinners, there's punishment. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to ask, I think, some pretty hard questions that we often maybe are asking to ourselves or at least wondering as it relates to the subject of hell. I don't know. I'm, I have 10. I'm going to try to get through them. I'm asking a question. I'm going to give a very short response. My heart is not to give these 10 questions could ultimately be 10 separate messages. I realize that. My heart is to raise some really tough questions, to give a very short answer with some scripture, but all of these questions have to do with the reality of hell. And I think when we typically think of hell, you'll either get really frustrated and say, forget it. If there's a, such a place as hell, then I want nothing to do with God and I'm, I'll, I'll walk away. So before you ever even enter into a conversation about hell, You've already closed your mind and said, if there's such a place, then I, I, I can't even think about or fathom a God who would have a place called hell. I want to encourage you, don't check out. Some of you have more of the mentality when you think about hell, it's kind of like the, the guy who's got his head in the sand. If I don't think about it, maybe it will just go away. If I don't ask some of these tough questions or force myself to wrestle, if I just don't think about it, Hopefully, when I pull my hand up out of the sand, it will somehow magically disappear. Don't do that either. I think Paul's approach to damnation, to hell, to being cursed, to being cut off, he was very humbled that God had rescued him from this fate, from this reality, but it also inspired him to tell others, to be very bold, to be very passionate of hell is a reality. So the first question I want to ask is this, number one, will there be people who are cursed or cut off from God? Will there be people in hell? If yes, who? 
One more time. Will there be people who are cursed or cut off from God? Will there be people in hell? Is, is hell populated? And if it is, who is it populated by? My answer to this is yes. Yes, there is a place called hell. Yes, hell will be populated. And the people that will populate hell will be the people that did not receive, rejected God's plan of salvation. The people who seek to self-save will be the people that have, are populating hell. There is no such thing as self-salvation. There is no such way to God, to heaven, by working my way there, by doing good enough things, by trying hard. There's no self-salvation. So hell is populated by people who have rejected Christ, meaning I am left to pay the penalty of my sin. I don't think anyone would disagree, but all of us are sinners. At some point, we've missed the mark. We've not been perfect. We've done wrong. It doesn't matter whether you've done it once or a million times. If you sin, you're a sinner. Once or a million doesn't matter. And God makes pretty clear in Scripture that the penalty of sin is death. And we're not just talking about you physically keel over and die. When the Bible talks about death, we're talking about a spiritual separation from God. A few verses, Romans 6, we studied this a few months back. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God gives us a gift of salvation. For those who receive it, they have it. For those who look at the gift that God has given and say, not for me, not interested, I'll figure this out on my own, that is who is in hell because they're left to pay the penalty for their sin. Again, in Romans 5.18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all, meaning one sin by one man, naming, he's naming Adam here, one sin led to condemnation for all of us. Paul goes on, though, and says the good news. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. If I receive what Christ has done for me, what Christ accomplished for me, I stand justified before God, declared righteous. Why? Because he paid the penalty of my sin. Tough question. Is there a hell? Yes. Will hell be populated? Yes. Who is it populated with? People who rejected God's plan of salvation, namely his son. That is question number one. Question number two, what will hell be like? Ever wonder that? If there is a place called hell and people will be there, what's hell going to be like? Now, Scripture uses very symbolic language such as fire and burning and darkness, gnashing of the teeth, eternal torment. Now, some folks recently have suggested, well, that description, that very symbolic language is actually describing a physical location, a place that would most first century Jewish people uh, would be very familiar with. That word there is called Gehenna. And that uh, would be a, what people in the first century commonly recognized as a city dump. That's where there were lots of fires going on. That's where people would drop off all of their trash, as it were. Some people would say, well, he's referring to that place, which means basically hell is nothing more than hell on earth. What we make of this life here, we either create a hell for ourselves now, or we will create a heaven for ourselves. 
That's not true. Jesus, when he talks about hell, he's using very symbolic, very powerful images to describe a place, a real place, an eternal place. This is what, um, I've already quoted him earlier, but uh, Dr. Sproul says, whenever we talk about symbols or images, we use a symbol to represent a reality. The reality always exceeds in, in its substance what the symbol contains. If the images of the New Testament view of hell are but images and symbols, then, then that would mean to me that the reality is much, much worse than the literal symbols we are given. The language that Jesus uses, the language that Paul uses, is very highly symbolic, which speaks to me that it's not a place I want to go to. It's not a place that I even want to fathom. What is hell like? You've seen some of the symbolic language that Scripture uses. But please keep in mind, that's just symbolic. Those are just images. What I do know of hell is you are eternally separated from God forever with no hope of ever escaping hell. Once you're there, you're there. That is your eternal fate. Question number three. Why do we struggle so much with the reality of hell, of condemnation, of God's wrath, being cut off, being cursed? Why do we struggle so much with this reality? My answer to that is, typically, generally, we don't think our sins or the sins of others merit such punishment. We think maybe just a divine slap on the wrist. Hey, cut that out. Don't do that again. We basically have the attitude is that our sin is ultimately not that bad, which communicates is we're really not that bad of people. God, relax a little bit. Do you really need a place of eternal torment? Do you need a place of damnation, cursed, cut off? And our view towards God, a response towards God is, if you just knew me, God, you realize I'm a pretty likable guy. Yes, I make mistakes, and yes, I kind of do my own things, but at the end of the day, I'm generally a good person. Well, all of you probably compared to me, yeah, absolutely, great people, incredible people. Our problem is when we play the comparison game is we're comparing ourselves to other people, and we typically compare down. Very rarely do we ever compare up. When I consider who I am in light of comparing myself to God, wow, a wretched evil, sinful person. When I compare myself to the holiness, the perfection, the righteousness of who God is, we all fall way, way short. And one of the things that the Bible makes clear is those who fall short, meaning those who sin, doesn't, and there's, by the way, there's no levels of sin. Those who sin, there is punishment for that sin. Question number four, why is God so wrathful towards sin and sinners? Again, this is kind of repeating this question of why is God so wrathful? Why is it just seems such a severe punishment? Well, regardless to us how insignificant our sin might appear, because our, our idea of hell, our idea of sin, I mean, is 
it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I killed someone. It's not like I raped someone. It's not like I abused a kid. It's just not that big of a deal. Sin might be insignificant to us, but you have to understand that any sin, all sin, every sin is a full-on assault to the holiness and sovereignty of God. It is an absolute offense in the face of a holy God. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We play big and small games of sin and things in the middle, but any sin, all sin, every sin is an absolute affront to God. Jerry Bridges, I I quoted him a, a few months back, but he said this, God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. We might say God's wrath is his justice in action. That kind of leads us to a question of, if there was no hell, okay? Imagine, there's no hell. There's no punishment. Would God still be God? Say there's just heaven, right? There's absolutely no no hell whatsoever, no punishment, as it were, for sin. Would you still declare God to be God? I would contend you could not. If there is no hell, there's no justice. And if God is not just, he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, he can't be God. God is absolutely perfect, God is absolutely holy, and God is just. Hell is God's justice on display. If you take hell away, where is their justice? Where is their who pays the penalty for that sin? It goes unnoticed, unpunished, undealt with. How could God be God, bless you, if there was no punishment? Hell is a demonstration of the justice of God and Jesus a demonstration of the mercy of God. I want you to get that. It's easy to think, can we just get rid of hell? Can we just not talk about it anymore? You take away hell, you take away the justice of God. Question number five, doesn't hell seem too severe, too harsh? I've heard this question a lot. Uh, Michael, like we live for 80 years at best. Some longer, some fewer, but somewhere in there. Like, does it seem fair that God would punish someone for eternity just for 80 years of sin? Maybe it should work like this. You live for 80 years and sin for 80 years, you get hell for 80 years. After that, then you just poof. <laughs> you, I don't know where you go, but you go somewhere. That seems to work, right? When we are even thinking that thought, do you know what's behind that thought? If God were just a little bit more compassionate like I am, If God had as much compassion that I have, if God had as much mercy as I had, then he would come up with a plan like that. It's really another way of saying, if God was only like me, man, things would be so much better. The reality is that we have absolutely no sense of true justice. I know that we often think we understand justice, but we don't understand justice. And do you know why we don't understand justice? because we're not perfect. There's only one person who could understand justice in its perfection, and that's a perfect God. This is what uh, another author I quote often said. 
John Piper said it like this, God is not content to leave all people under his wrath, nor can he simply sweep sin under the rug of the universe. Therefore, his love and his justice conspire to make a way for sinners to be saved and God's justice to be vindicated. The answer is the death of Jesus. God's perfect justice seen in hell, God's perfect mercy seen in Jesus. Question six, how do I cultivate a heart like Paul for my brothers, sisters, for those who are currently cut off from Christ? Paul had such a love, such an affection for those that were cut off, for those that had rejected Christ. How do we, you and I, cultivate a heart like that? I'm going to give you very quick responses because we're running out of time. But here's number one, love Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more that you will begin to love what Jesus loves and the more that your heart will begin to break for the things that break the heart of Jesus. Paul had such a love relationship with Christ, enough for him to say, I'd rather be cursed and cut off. That can only come by a man who genuinely loved Jesus. Okay? Question number seven. A loved one refuses to acknowledge a need for God, for Jesus, for a Savior. They feel like they don't need saving. What do I do? I'm going to venture to say all of us have at least one person in our life that that's where they're at. They just have a refusal mentality. I don't need this. Don't talk to me about it. Don't even mention it. Like, let's just keep it simple. Let's talk about the Red Sox. What do you do with that loved one who refuses to acknowledge? I'm going to give you a few suggestions here. I'll be quick with it, but suggestion one, learn to plant verbal and nonverbal seeds. It's not just in what you say, it's in how you live as well. Learn to talk about what God has done, is doing in your life, and then be the person that demonstrates God is alive in your life. Don't just plant verbal seeds of God loves you, come to church with me, Jesus died for you. Be a demonstration of the power of God at work in your life. This is similar to the second one, but the second one is give people an example to see. It's too easy. Well, go look at that guy over there. That's kind of what Christianity looks like. Or go look at that woman over there. Her life has been totally changed. Well, what about you? Well, I'm kind of new to this and it's not really kicked in yet. That magic juice, I need more of it. You be an example for them to see. Richard Baxter, who is a Puritan pastor, said this, Men would sooner believe that the gospel is from heaven if they saw more such effects of it upon the hearts and lives of those who profess it. You be that person. Be the example of this is working in my life. My life is changing. My life is transforming. Why? Well, because of Christ. My marriage, which was not working, is working now. Why? Well, God's doing amazing things. A third way. Pray like crazy. I learned this from my mom who prayed for her father for till his deathbed. About three, four days before that man died, and he was a pretty hard-hearted guy. Had lots of lots of things. But she was relentless and faithful to pray that one day his heart would be softened to Jesus. Can you imagine praying for someone for 
years and years and years. If you want to see those loved ones, those people that you're thinking about right now, then be relentless in praying for them. She saw an answer to her prayer. Decades and decades of prayer. Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Another way to come alongside those in our lives who just don't seem to care, seem indifferent. Be a winsome person. Don't be an obnoxious jerk. Be a winsome individual. I'm not talking about walking around with sandwich boards and turn or burn or you're going to hell. I'm talking about being a very winsome people. See people as people loved by God, not as your project to save. They need Jesus. They don't need you. You're not their savior, but God has placed you, planted you in their life to love them as he loves them. One more way. Be urgently intentional, not casually organic. I shared that one with Kyla, and she was like, hmm, what, what do you mean by that, Michael? What does it mean to be intentional and not organic? I think there's a lot of us who have friends who fit this category. of They seem very indifferent, hard-hearted, cold, don't care about God. And so we kind of hang out with them, and we just hope one day something spiritual will pop up. We just hope that one day, you know, maybe as they're sipping coffee, they'll have such a great coffee and be like, wow, maybe God created this coffee. And then we jump into a conversation. You have to be urgently intentional with the people in your lives. You can't just wait around for conversations to magically happen. Again, be winsome, but learn to ask questions. Learn to ask meaningful questions, significant questions, intentional questions that gets them thinking about who they are and where they are. Questions that draw them in and draw them out. Jesus, if you want a list of questions, read Matthew, then read Mark, then read Luke, and then read John. Write every question down that Jesus asked and then go ask people those questions. He was phenomenal at this. Question number eight. A loved one died not knowing Jesus. Are they really in hell? How do I worship? How do I relate with? How do I love a God that would send my loved one, my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, whoever? A loved one died not knowing Jesus. Are they really in hell? This is a really hard question because all of us immediately are thinking right now of a person that we've lost and we don't know for sure, we just don't know exactly where they were with God. I'll give you a very quick response. When I think about this question, and this is probably the hardest one we're looking at, is I trust the sovereignty of God in all things, which means I trust the sovereignty of God in all people. God and God alone knows the ultimate condition and heart of a person. Okay? I do not share this or say that to give you, myself, or anyone else a sense of false security or maybes, that maybe that person is in heaven. I'm not suggesting that. If they died rejecting Jesus, saying, I don't want Jesus, I will die in my sin, I will self-save. 
I do believe that person is cut off, separated from God. But what I will tell you is I ultimately do not know the heart condition of a man. And I don't mean in his last moments. I mean throughout the span of his life. Yes, I believe that there will be fruit. But I trust in this fully in the sovereignty of God. And an example of this that I often come back to is the thief on the cross. A life lived apart from God, and in his last moments, he just, a simple plea, will you remember me? And the most phenomenal promise in Scripture, he says, I'm not only going to remember you, I'm taking you to paradise with me right now. I trust in God's mercy. I trust in God's justice. I trust in God's sovereignty. Number nine, how can I be certain that I am going to heaven? I hope that as we've been even talking about hell, you're starting to wonder, gosh, I don't want to go there. Can you be absolutely 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt certain that you're going to heaven? I can't tell you how many people that I've met who call themselves Christians, confess to be Christians. I ask them that question, well, I'm about 85%. Really? Well, what makes up for the 15% of doubt? Well, it's just things haven't been going well recently and you know, I haven't read my Bible. I haven't given, you know, I haven't been doing things. Oh, so it's 85% on Jesus, 15% on you. Well, okay, maybe I'm more like 95%. Well, okay, that's cool. So it's 95% on Jesus, 5% on you. It's either all on Jesus or it's not. I want you to know if you're here today, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your God, as your Savior, as the one that makes you right with God, you can have a 100% assurance, no matter what happens moving forward, that you have life with God in eternity in a place called heaven. Why do I have that? Why can I have that confidence? Why can you have that confidence? Because Jesus said so. Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. I either am with Jesus, receive Jesus, have Jesus, or I don't. So do you want to know 100%? Do you know Christ? Have you received Christ? Have you confessed Christ? When I'm talking about confessing Christ, I'm literally saying, God, I'm a sinner who deserves your divine justice. But Jesus paid that penalty for me. I receive what Christ did for me. That's what I'm talking about. That's the gospel. There is divine judgment, but there's also divine mercy. Question 10, and we'll stop here. What if you're here today, and you know that in your heart of hearts, Jesus is not your Savior? He's a good man, a good teacher, but that's it, nothing more. As you're sitting here and just heard that explanation, like, wow, I don't know Jesus like that. I've not confessed Jesus as Savior of my life. If that is you, and if you're here today, that's your question number 10. I would ask you these things. Number one, is it worth it? What you're doing, where you're going, how you're living right now, is it worth it? Richard Baxter, I quoted him earlier, Puritan pastor said this, what good will all this do me if I live and I die an enemy to God and a stranger to Christ and his spirit, and so perish forever. 
Let these thoughts be day and night upon your mind till your soul be changed. If that's you, question 10, is it really worth being separated from God forever in divine justice, a place called hell? Paul wrestled with this a lot. And Paul's, as he talked about in Corinthians, he says very simply this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I would implore you, and this word implore means to literally beg. I would beg you, if you are apart from God, if you are not reconciled to the God who desires to save you, what are you doing? Is it really worth it? A life of just doing your own thing your own way knowing that the consequences are this great, eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I would beg you, I would implore you, if this is you, turn your life to Christ now, today. Do not wait for tomorrow. Do not wait for next week. Where you sit in your chair right now, close your eyes and ask the God who desires to save you to fill your heart, your life, to receive Christ, confess him as your savior. Paul said this with very tearful eyes as he's begging, imploring his brothers and his sisters, his Gentile friends, I'm begging you, make this decision and make this decision today. I realize that there is a lot that could be said on the subject of hell. I've at best scratched the surface and I've at best maybe raised more questions for you than I gave you answers. I would implore you not to check out of what God is doing right now with you. I realize that there will be people here today that that's you, question 10. Please respond to what God is doing right now in your heart. Turn your life to Christ. Some of you have just been, your soul is now aching because you just realize how many friends and family are separated from Christ right now. As we pray, as we celebrate communion, as we worship, Cry out to God for them on their behalf, that God would soften their hearts, that he would give you divine appointments to speak with them, to love them, to serve them, to encourage them. Heaven is a very real place. Hell is a very real place. God is a God who saves.